All right, welcome back to a bonus episode of the Blasters and Blades podcast. So, hey, all you crazy sci-fi and fantasy fans, time for your daily dose of shenanigans over here at the Blasters and Blades podcast. Just three nerdy veterans geeking out over our science fiction passions and fantastical fantasies, a place where magic is king, the sky is the limit, and space is the place. So without further ado, let me tell you what we're doing right now. We're getting ready to uh, release some of the archive that we found from when we were the sci-fi shenanigans. Uh, we're going to get those up there for, for the posts that were brought down. We thought you might enjoy them. Um, and so without further ado, let us uh, let us roll that beautiful... Oh, wait, they're going to sue me. Play it. Hey, all you crazy sci-fi fans. Time for your daily dose of insanity. Over here at the Sci-Fi Shenanigans Podcast with your hosts, Jared Handley and me, Chris Winder. Just two nerdy veterans out over a science fiction passion, a place where the sky's the limit, space is the place, and nerds run the world. Without further ado. All right, welcome back to another episode of the Sci-Fi Shenanigans podcast. Today, unfortunately, Chris Winder couldn't make it. Uh, I do believe after a trip to Vegas, he um, has to explain to his wife why their life savings went into a slot machine. But uh, he is a good teller of tall tales, so I'm sure he can convince her this was an investment in his future or Vegas's future, someone's future. Uh, and he will be back next week on our next episode. Uh, in the meantime, you've got just me. And as our special guest, we have author Kevin Eikenberry. Woohoo, Kevin. All Thank right. Thank you very much. Great, great to be right. here. Uh, and it's great to have you. So uh, Kevin's Eikenberry's head has been in the cloud since he was old enough to read. Ask him and he'll tell you that he still wants to be an astronaut. Was that true? Do you still want to be an astronaut? Absolutely. I'd go tomorrow. Outstanding. All right. So with over 25 years of experience in space education, including managing the U.S. Space Camp Program and serving as an executive of two Challenger Learning Centers, Kevin continues to work with space every day. A retired Army officer, Kevin lives in Colorado with his family. His home is seldom a boring, boring place. So do you speak a lot about the uh, Fermi Paradox over the dinner table? Uh, not typically, no. With uh, two girls under the age of 12, it's mostly either Disney princesses or <laughs> Barbie dolls. <laughs> yep, that would do it. Although that's less than interesting for most of us, but uh, J.R. Castle would, would get mad at me if she heard me saying these things, so I will shut up. So <laughs> uh, He is the author of the Protocol War series featuring Colorado Book Award finalist Sleeper Protocol uh, with Publishers Weekly called An Emotionally Powerful Debut and the sequel Vendetta Protocol. Kevin is also the author of a wildly successful Peacemaker novels in the Four Horsemen universe, Peacemaker, Honor the Threat, and Stand or Fall, as well as military science fiction novel Runs in the Family. His short fiction has appeared internationally across various publications and anthologies. He is an active member of the Science Fiction Writers of America and the International Thriller Writers. And he is an alumni and staff member of the Superstars Writing Seminars and an overall awesome dude. And if you don't believe me, ask him. He put it on his profile. <laughs> because he's modest, people. Very, very modest. I'm not sure that I added that on there. So. <laughs> Go <with> it. <laughs> All right. So the next part of the introduction, dear listener, is how we found him. So I actually found Kevin through the uh, Four Horsemen series. He's in a few of the anthologies, uh, and he wrote some standalone novels in the universe. So when we started hunting for guests, Chris Kennedy messaged me and wouldn't shut up until we talked to him, him being Kevin. So here we are, because sometimes it's easier just to say yes to Chris Kennedy than it is to listen to him drone on. It it is much easier to say yes. I can say that the the whole peacemaker thing came from me saying yes to Chris Kennedy when he asked, "Can I write a book?" After I turned in a short story in the first anthology, and then after the first book, he said, "Hey, can you write two more?" <laughs> He's like so, that. Yeah, you you say yes, it keeps him off your back, but it also keeps you very busy. It does. It does. So the uh, let's get right into the interview. The religion question: Star Wars, Star Trek, Firefly. So I am a child of Star Wars. I was. That was the summer I turned seven when the first one came out. I saw it in the theater probably 12 or 13 times that summer. So I've always been a Star Wars kid, but not to say that I, I don't follow Star Trek. And then following Firefly, when Firefly came out, I actually never watched it. And when the movie finally came out, Serenity, 
I decided, well, I've heard a lot about this. I'm going to go back and watch the the series, and I loved it. It's Firefly is a tremendous series, and I, I wish, like everybody else, that it would have continued. <sighs> Those dang people at Fox, they're going to have a special place in the seventh circle of hell for that. I think we could stick some Reavers on them, and they would uh, maybe get the point. <laughs> probably, probably. And that was a Firefly reference, people, if you didn't catch it. And if you don't know what that was, you should watch it and be ashamed of yourself. So yeah, uh, We actually just had that conversation around our house. My wife said, what's this Firefly thing? I was like, oh, okay, time to break out the DVDs. Yes, I have them box set as well. And, and the follow-on movie. So yep. what do you love about science fiction as a genre? I think the, the thing that sticks out for science fiction as a genre to me is uh, Ray Bradbury actually defined it as the art of the possible. And when you start looking at science fiction, you know, in its early days, there was a lot of the, the gizmo stories, you know, they would be on an adventure and they need, need a certain gizmo or they'd have to build something to solve it. So it was kind of the engineering conundrum problem. And I think that that kind of started the, the process for most of the, the modern science fiction, thinking about ways that technology and science can advance us. And so it really did, in that sense, become the art of the possible. And that's something that I've always gravitated towards. Intellectual answer. I would just say something about the pew pew, but you know, we can be smart <laughs> for a reason, people. So uh, what's your first memory of watching or reading or playing games sort of in the science fiction space? I'd say it's probably uh, before Star Wars. I think I remember seeing, you know, reruns of like Space 1999 on TV. And then, of course, that was back in the old days when it was three channels and you had to get up to go turn the channel and it had the antenna with the, the aluminum foil on it. Um, but then, you know, with, with Star Wars, when that came out with the, the action figures and the merchandising and the, then the comic books and everything else, and then, of course, the novels that followed on, it became the, the, this big, gigantic universe that you could essentially hold in the palm of your hands in between the movies. And that's pretty much where it, what I think cemented me as a sci-fi fan back in the days was being able to, to do those types of things. And not that star Wars was the end all be all, you know, I was a huge collector of GI Joe back in the day and um, actually got a chance to write in that universe for a while too, which was fun. But uh, I think that that was probably my, my earliest is the before star Wars looking there space 1999. And then of course I tell people that my first memory of television and I swear by this is, from 1975, the Apollo Soyuz test, pro- Soyuz test Project, I remember very clearly watching the television coverage and watching Alexei Leonov and uh, Tom Stafford shaking hands. Uh, that's just kind of kind of been what my whole thing as a kid was wanting to be an astronaut and all those things about space. And that's where my memory is. So you wrote for G.I. Joe? Like the I did. I wrote, I wrote, a, well, back it's, unfortunately the program ended. It was in Kindle worlds. Kindle had a program where you could actually write licensed fan fiction in, in a particular approved universe. And so GI Joe, a real American hero was one of those. And I ended up, I wrote a short story and submitted it and it was accepted for publication and it was one of their bestsellers. It was a, a lot of fun to write. It's a, it's a shame that the, the site's gone now. Cause I really love that story and I wanted to write a second one, but yeah, it, that was great. So is there any way you could pull that story out and put it in another universe, but save the story? Nope. It, nope. It completely belongs to the universe now. And now that the, the whole program is gone, that's probably one that will never see the light of day again, unfortunately. Now, I thought you owned the story when Kindle Worlds closed, but you just had to strip out the um, G.I. Joe specific stuff. You know, I haven't I haven't gone back to actually look at the the fine print. You may be absolutely right. It's just something that I haven't I haven't gotten into. I've been a little busy with this thing called the Four Horsemen. So <laughs> I, I know some people that had series like that and they just stripped out the universe and re-released it without that stuff. Reskinned it basically. Right. Although G.I. Joe is unique enough, it would be somewhat difficult to shoehorn it into something so i don't know yeah especially especially when we start dealing with characters and character descriptions and stuff like that and i'm just thinking off the top of my head here it would be really hard for me to do that in the in the universe and get away with it yeah but anyway it'd just be interesting i'm sure you know you've got fans that uh didn't get a chance to read it now they're gonna be like curse you i wanted to read that story (laughs) well we'll see what we can do sometime in the future who knows so um how did your love of the genre of science fiction transition into your writing stories in it so I'm not one of those people, <clears throat> excuse me, that's ever said that they wanted to be a writer. Um, I was told in high school I was a good writer. I was told again in college I was a good writer, but I did exactly nothing with that. Uh, when I was at space camp in the, the mid-1990s, we had a program at Aviation Challenge, which is the, the part of space camp that talks about uh, teaching kids how to be high-performance jet fighter pilots. And we actually created a little fictional fighter squadron to um, – 
fly missions against the kids. And then we created a little intelligence dossiers about about pilots. And then it kind of rolled from there into writing little stories. And that was the first time I'd ever really tried to write anything fictional. And it, we ended up, I think, between the, the bunch of us that were doing it, we're writing, I don't know, probably a dozen, uh, 15 short stories. And mine will never see the light of day. Nobody will ever see them because I've gone back and read them and they're terrible. But um, that was kind of the first time I ever sat down and tried to write something. And then fast forward all the way till 2009. And I was teaching ROTC on active duty as, a, as an officer. and I was sitting at my desk one idle Tuesday afternoon and I had an idea for a story and I started writing notes on a, on a notebook that I had there next to my desk. And about two pages into the notes, I thought, this is a book. How do I write a book? And I ended up, you know, of course, being on a college campus, I talked to my boss and said, can I go back and take a college class? He's like, sure. So I went back and I took creative writing and I turned in the first assignment. The instructor uh, asked me why I wasn't published. And I said, I have no idea. And at that point, then I started trying to write that book. And then I also started writing short stories and submitting those to markets. And that was kind of how it started from there. And everything that I wrote for the class was of a science fiction nature. It's just kind of always been something that's in my head. And that's kind of, again, that's kind of where I've gravitated towards. Okay. First time ROTC instructor was the uh, origin story for the author. But, uh... <laughs> What do you think was your start, the single largest influence on your writing? Is there any one author you always enjoyed and tried to emulate? Is it an experience you had as a child? Like, what do you think is the defining moment that that is how you write? I think science fiction has, has always been a part of my life. I mean, my, I remember when my dad was a, a biology professor in his office on the shelf, he had books by Asimov and Clark. And I remember reading Asimov, the, the Caves of Steel and, and iRobot. And of course, you know, when you're 10 years old, those books make absolutely no sense. But then reading you know, Arthur C. Clarke, I could kind of get into Clarke. And as I read a little bit more, and then of course, Star Wars kind of blossomed that field out. Um, I, I started reading a, a bunch of different things. The, the two books that stood out to me the most and have continued to be inspirations for me, though, when I was, when I was in ROTC as a cadet, was the first time I was handed the book Starship Troopers. And uh, Heinlein, aside from writing a, a really a really good book, he really understood small unit leadership. And as a you know a cadet learning to be a, a second lieutenant and being an officer, you have to learn what leadership is like. And so as you watch Johnny Rico go through his progression as a cadet, it really resonated with me that he's he's doing what he needs to do to take his to take his unit to war. The second book that that came into play was about the time I was graduating was the, the first time I was handed the book The Forever War by Joe Haldeman. And that is uh, one of my other inspirations because if I, and I've and I've told this story a few times but I've always when I had the opportunity to put the book in my cadet's hands I would tell them that Heinlein was the book that told you how to go to war and The Forever War was the book that told you how to come home. And I think between those two books that kind of cemented the area of where I wanted to kind of put myself. That was kind of like my left and right limits of, of where I wanted to be in science fiction was somewhere between those two. So I got those in the show notes. If you've never read those two books uh, and we will go from there. So the um, transitioning away from the writing side, let's talk about it from a fan angle. So before we get into your specific books, have you gotten any cool fan art or had anyone cosplay your characters yet? So uh, from a, the fan art perspective, this is actually one that, that I ended up, I was involved with. Um, I was starting to do uh, character design ideas for Jessica Francis because I had some people that had reached out to me about cosplaying her. She's the, the peacemaker in the Four Horsemen universe. And uh, I actually ended up reaching out to a friend that I had met at Denver Comic-Con who was a comic book artist, Matt Haley, uh, who's worked with both Marvel and DC Comics over the years. And I, I was talking to Matt about how I go through selecting an, uh, to selecting an artist and what are the things that I would need to provide for the artist. And he said, well, what are you wanting to do? And I told him, he said, well, you've caught me between projects, so how about I do it for you? And so Matt and I then worked up, we have a, a print now, and it'll be something that we'll be launching. It's, it's actually already out for the Four Horsemen Universe. It was part of the uh, Challenge Coin Kickstarter back uh, about eight months ago. But it's something that I have with me and I take out now so that folks can see that from a, from a fan art perspective. And then I had a cosplayer at Dragon Con. And I think with uh, a little bit of uh, recollection, she was probably cosplaying Black Widow from the Avengers. But when she saw the, the cover for Peacemaker and Honor the Threat and Stand or Fall, with, which all feature Jessica, she was like, hey, that's me. I'm like, yep, that's pretty much you. <laughs> so uh, I count her as my first cosplayer, definitely. 
Perfect. Perfect. So have you ever spotted anyone in the wilds reading your book? I have. Um, I was uh, at, a, at a convention and I ended up, it was not a convention that I was selling books at, but there was someone that was sitting in the lobby with a copy of Sleeper Protocol. And it was one of those moments where I just kind of stopped and stu- stared for a minute and then walked around the rest of the day with a, a big, ridiculous smile on my face. All right. Did you go up and talk to the person? No, I, <laughs> I probably would have would have stammered my way through that and be like, "Hi, I'm the author." Uh, I I didn't do it. I just kind of kind of took that moment for me. Take any pictures on the slide so you could save that moment. I know a friend of mine got a picture of it. Yes. Perfect. Perfect. So um, I imagine it gets harder the uh, more technologically bound we get because with everyone reading on their Kindle, you'd almost have to like be peeping over their shoulder, which is kind of frowned <laughs> upon. Yeah. Like, what are you reading? Yeah, if, if there was a way that you had a little sign that you know would show what people are reading, that would be great. But it also might be that whole invasion of privacy thing. Or awkward, depending on what they're reading. That's true. <laughs> That's true. No, but um, all right. So uh, finally, the uh, weirdest or funniest story about an interaction with a fan that you've had since you started writing. So I was at Worldcon 2016, and I had a, had a fan reach out to me about wanting to meet me, and so I said, "Okay, here's where I'm going to be." And they came up and they were, they were waiting for where we're waiting right around where I was at. And I was in a booth that's called Bard's tower, which is a traveling uh, author experience. And I was in the, the booth along with uh, Mercedes Lackey and Larry Dixon and Chuck Gannon. And at the end of the booth down to my right was Kevin J. Anderson. And so this gentleman comes up and he's talking with uh, somebody that was next to me. I may, it may have been, may have been Chuck Gannon. I can't remember, but he asked, is, is Kevin around? And everybody immediately points past me to Kevin J. Anderson. And then the, the guy comes back and he says, I hear you're the Kevin I'm looking for. <laughs> so it was the, the first time I was ever confused for Kevin J. Anderson. So Kevin J. Anderson, you and Mercedes Lackey and Chuck Gannon, what were you talking about? <clears throat> oh, all kinds of book stuff. You never know. <laughs> that was actually, that was a tremendous, tremendous experience, especially being next to Chuck because the, the story is Chuck is the one that got me into the Four Horsemen. Uh, when he had offered to blurb uh, Vendetta Protocol for me, when he sent that blurb back at the bottom of the email, it said, P.S., I'm going to get you in touch with Chris Kennedy and Mark Wandry, who are creating this universe I think you'd be a good fit for. And uh, things have gone on swimmingly from there, you could say. Yeah, Mercedes Lackey is kind of fun, too. She was at RavenCon 2016, I believe, so I got to meet her and her husband. Mm-hmm. Inter- interesting people, and they stayed oh, late to make sure they signed for everybody that was there. Yep, they are great. So, and I don't know how their hands didn't fall off because the line wrapped around the building. <laughs> That's the way it goes. Yeah, they, they are awesome. So they must have like author workouts that I'm not important enough to get like the copy of where they like somehow like strengthen their pen signing. I don't know. <laughs> so you just get to the point where you have a, a signature that you can do with, you know, just a couple of moves and be done with it. Well, see, I could just scribble and look like a doctor, but nobody would know it was J.R. Handley. So I don't know. That, that, that might defeat the purpose. So Yeah, it might. You never know. <laughs> All right. So this is the part of the interview where I list out everything in series that Kevin has written. So we have Stand or Fall, the Omega Wars uh, series. We have Peacemaker, the Revelation Cycle, book six. And we have Honor the Threat, the Revelation Cycle Book 12, I understand they're all part of a, a unified sort of trilogy, but they're sp- spread out, interspersed in the um, the larger universe, um, which is why I couldn't give you just a, a series name. He was in A Fistful of Credits, Stories from the Four Horsemen Universe, which is obviously Four Horsemen Anthology, um, Gareth Red Thriller Series, The Protocol Wars Series, Science Fiction Writers Sample 2014 Anthology, Avatar Dreams, Science Fiction v- Visions of Avatar Technology Anthology, the Infinity Cluster Digital Science Fiction Anthology Volume 2, the Runs in the Family, which is a standalone um, novel, Dragon Riders, an anthology, Writers with a W, Lancer 1 novella in the Imprint War universe, uh, Quick Fic Anthology, uh, Short Story Speculative Fiction, Um, we have Maelstrom, which is a standalone short story, and we have Illegal Digital Science Fiction Short Story Anthology, and I'm sure it's totally legal to buy it, so don't let the name fool you. We have <laughs> Ascent, which is a standalone novelette, and Ship, Mines, and Ice Cream, a standalone short story. Uh, does it come with a free uh, uh, like double scoop or something? 
It might. No, it, that that that's actually one of the, the very first stories that I ever wrote. I'm kind of kind of partial to it. All right. Well, all those stories sound amazing. Today, we're going to focus on his The Protocol War series. I picked the series because I haven't heard him talk about that. And we've done a lot of Four Horsemen stuff lately, so I didn't want to you know, make the audience get bored. Oh, those guys again. So uh, how did you come up with the idea or premise for the series? Uh, where did the spark of inspiration come from? Um, I don't know that there was a, any type of particular spark. I was sitting at my desk one day, and of course, uh, this is where I say, hi, my name's Kevin, and I have a notebook problem. But I had a notebook there next to me, and, and what's something I would write little notes for shorts, for stories and whatnot. And I flipped over a page, and I wrote a line. And the line was, I remember being born with great clarity. And at the time, I thought that was going to be like the, the ultimate starting line for a novel ever. And when I got a chance to, to sit down and, and look at that and kind of go where my brain was, was looking, it just kind of started to piece together the story. And that's really kind of where it came from. And it became a story of a soldier from our time who wakes up 300 years in the future without his identity. He's given one year to essentially wander the world and figure that out. But along the way, he also has to figure out if that future world's worth saving. Interesting premise. So um, that premise, it sort of reminds me of Scalzi's Old Man's War. So was that intentional? Actually, no, I had not read Old Man's War when I wrote Sleeper Protocol. Um, It was something that after uh, when I had gotten through and I pushed it out to a couple of my friends, one of my friends had reached back and said, hey, you need to read this book. And then I had another friend that suggested I read The the Unincorporated Man by Eitan and Danny Collin. And so I went back and read both of those books and made sure that I was not doing anything that was you know, stretching the, 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 the realm of <laughs> stealing their ideas or anything along those lines. And uh, all of those were, were fantastic books. So you did go back and read the, um, um, oh, draw a blank, the old man's war. You ended up reading it. I did. I did. Yeah. I, I thought, I thought John did a, a great job. He's, he does character very well and he is firmly committed to the characters in his universe. And I, it's uh, it, the old man's war is a tremendous book. Uh, it deserves all the praise that it, that it gets, and I've I've read the the other books in the series, and they're they're good, but in in my opinion only, they don't they don't compare to Old Man's War. I think Old Man's War was just uh, almost a perfect book. Almost. So, what would make a perfect book? Oh, geez, now you're going to put me on the spot. <laughs> um, I, th- I I actually I think that the thing I wanted with Old Man's War was I wanted more. I wanted a little bit more of it. I think it could have been could have been a little bit longer. I think it could have taken uh, uh, his story, John Perry's story, and, and gone a little bit more with it. Okay, so um, I also detected some shades of the uh, Haldem- Joe Haldeman's Forever War, which you mentioned that you read. So, do you think that series inspired you, or was it more just a subconscious thing? I think it was more subconscious than anything because, again, that's that's a book that's been on my shelf forever, along with my copy of Starship Troopers. And they're books that I pull out probably once a year. And if I don't read the whole thing, I flip through parts of it just because that's that's what I do. And so I, I'm sure that there was a, a lot of subconsciousness uh, that was that was rolled in there. Um, the, the, the coolest thing about that experience, though, with the, the Forever War was actually – getting a chance to meet Joe at uh, Worldcon in 2016, have lunch with him. And then uh, he actually came by and bought my book, which was pr- pretty damn cool considering that, you know, he's one of my, one of my literary idols, if you will. Cool. So did you give him a discount? Say again. Did you give him a discount? <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Full price for you. All right. So according to the blurb, this series um, plays with the concept of lost memories. So, and cause I, you know, we don't want to give any spoilers. So what is it about this idea that you think makes it such a compelling plot device? We've seen this in tons of books. So why is it in an enduring trope? I think it's an enduring trope because it immediately creates a sense of conflict for a character and it, it pulls us into uh, you know, we've all been in this in this uh, this situation where you walk into a room and you can't remember what you went in there for, and so that little panic moment of of lost memory, you take that and you extrapolate that forward a little bit, and you you see where a character that is experiencing that is something that is a significant emotional event, and I think that's the why that's the reason why that the trope, if you will, endures. I mean. I look back now thinking, you know, my debut novel had the amnesiac protagonist. Well, how many, how many books have done that over the years? Probably 50 million. I think that you can still tell a story well using those old tropes because it's, it's all about the character that you build as, as part of it. If, they, if it's a character that comes back and they put their memory back together and they become this awesome killing machine, that's probably not going to be 
uh, something that's going to resonate with your reader very much. If it's someone that comes back and you know they 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 learn some things and they fail some, and then they they learn a few more things and they fail some more. I think that makes a lot more uh, sense for what we want in a character. We, we all want to see ourselves in some way, shape, form, or fashion, the characters that we, that we read or that we watch on the movie screen. And if you, you make them you know, the, the perfect killing machine, it, it's not going to work. Well, I mean, it worked for Total Recall and the Bourne Identity. It did, but you know, even with uh, the Bourne Identity, I, I'll skip Total Recall because I thought that that was, that was not really well done as far as going back to Philip K. Dick's original story. But you know, looking at the born identity, the thing that the thing that brought the born identity to me more to life was the, the portrayal of Jason Bourne and the the portrayal of the character because he had all these things and he he it was all instinctual the way that he responded. Uh, so when you had the the action sequences, you believed what was going on, but it was more Matt Damon's portrayal of of and the emotions of going through trying to figure things out. You'd see him at the highs of putting things together. You'd see him being frustrated and being mad that he couldn't remember things. That I think tied it all together from the character development piece was how that was portrayed. Okay, I didn't realize the uh, Total Recall was a a, bo- a short story. Yeah, it was one of one of Philip K. Dick's. I can't remember if. <sighs> We can remember it for you wholesale. I think is the story that that spawned Total Recall. I may not be I may not be completely right about that, but I think that's it. I will look it up, and we will find out. I'm sure a quick Google search will uh, will solve that. So we are all good, and it will be in the show notes, dear listener, if you are curious. So um, the Protocol War is clearly a series. The books are because well, you said so on Amazon. Um, you have two books out in that series. So what's next for their characters? Is it is it done? A duology, or is there more? No, there will there will be a third book. It's probably going to be something I'll be writing this spring once I finish the the current Four Horsemen book I'm working on, uh, and then it'll go through the the publication process. That one's going to be called Eminence Protocol, and the intent is that that will end that particular trilogy. But because that's the the imprint war universe that I created, I think there's more stories there. I'm just not sure when exactly I'm going to get around to them. But this will this will complete the this particular trilogy of the Protocol War. So it'll complete the trilogy, but not the universe. Right. Okay. So we, um, looking at the time, it is about the time, dear listeners, where we pause and we shamelessly shill for the man, but uh, stick with us and we'll be right back. Well, hello, all you beautiful chicks and dudes of all sorts. This is Suave Rob Suarez, the double X daredevil star of Suave Rob's amazing (laughs) saving association here with another saving tip totally free from me to you to help you save your so you can live to sit another day now back in the day when dudes were dudes this one dude benchmark bob buddy of mine he had this little accident he tried frying up an egg when he was totally hammered so he washed a pan then didn't dry it then put a load of butter in it then turned on the heat well When you do that, chicks and dudes, the water makes the oil go splatso all over your own personal face. And good old Benchmark got his bench marked, if you know what I mean. Like, when he took his apron away from his face, it looked less like a face and more like someone had stepped on a pepperoni pizza. I don't like to think about it. But that goes to show you, you know? Always dry your pans before you put oil in them, man. Especially if you're frying an egg. Want to know where I learned all this gonzo sh-? I got it all done up pretty for you in Suave Rob's Double X Daring Do, the first book of Suave Rob's Awesome Adventures by J. Daniel Sawyer. Come share the awesomeness with me, my brothers, because you never know. The ass you save may be your own. All right. Welcome back. And thank you for sticking with us through that commercial interlude. We are still talking to author Kevin Eikenberry. Um, and we just got done with our introduction, which was a little bit long winded. It's all his fault. I swear. I don't talk at all. Um, <laughs> so, it, it is my fault. No problem. So we were talking about the uh, protocol war and what his plans were for. So back to that universe. We all know that every literary universe has its own internally consistent technology and rules of science. So what sort of technology can we expect from these books? FTL, ray guns, teleporters, uh, spill it, sir. So I, I will tell you that this series is all about the hand wavium. 
Um, so I have, uh, you know, artificial gravity. I have uh, faster than light that's accomplished through of space folding, uh, time space folding. Um, repulsor technology. So basically taking a, a, like a 100 ton main battle tank and putting it not on treads, but so it's repulsed. So it's actually floating above the ground, uh, that sort of stuff. So, yeah, there's there's a, a lot of different little technology pieces, but I don't tend to uh, explain it very very much at all. So, yeah, you just have to go with the fact it's a little hand wavium. <laughs> hey, that works. So uh, while with all the other universes that you've written in, your thriller and all the stuff that you do in the ever-expanding Four Horsemen universe, um, how do you keep it all straight in your head? Well, I mentioned I have a notebook problem. That that helps a lot of ways. But there's still things that that I will do. Or that that I will that I will transpose into different universes, and I think that's going to happen just because you've got so many things going on in your head. And thankfully, I've got a, a good team of beta readers that help me catch that stuff. Or, or Mark uh, Wandry and Chris Kennedy from with the Four Horsemen books, they'll 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 catch stuff and be like, "Hey, what's going on here? Oh yeah, sorry, I'll fix that." That sort of thing. So um, the thriller universe, the the Gareth Red thrillers, that's by my friend uh, Nick Thacker. Uh, and that was an experience of me trying to write a modern day thriller. So that was a little bit different. And so I didn't have to worry about my, my notebooks with, you know, here's my, the things I've been working on with this, this particular universe or, or this piece of technology or how this unit looks, that sort of thing. There was more basically, here's a storyline taking place today. And how does that work with this character? And that, that was a lot of fun. It was a good experience to, to kind of break out of what I normally do. All right. So did you find it different writing a thriller versus writing science fiction? Very, very thrill. Uh, the thriller was very challenging. I mean, it, keeping up, keeping up the pacing, keeping up the, the, uh, I guess the, the adrenaline of the, the, of the book. I mean, it's a, it's a short book anyway, but just trying to keep that pace and keep that going so that there's always something happening in the next turn of events was very challenging. I think it's going to play well. And with some of the other things that I want to write later on, but it's yeah, it was it was very cool to actually put down the science fiction pin for a while and pick this up and go. All right. So are you ever worried? And this is the one uh, Winder normally asks because it's his paranoid delusion. But uh, are you ever worried as you keep writing more books, you'll eventually go to a convention and find a fan who knows more about a specific universe than you? I would love that because I'd probably pay them to put some of those ideas and notes down on paper for me. <laughs> I would I would totally love that. Um. When they ask, like, oh, the deeper meaning, oh, did you really mean, was this symbology of fill in the blank? I'm just like, you caught that? That's the best answer. You just go with it. You know, I, I again, going back to Ray Bradbury, there's a, there's a story, I think, about him uh, sitting in a, an English class and they were talking about, or may, may, it may not have been Bradbury, it may have been someone else, but talking about why the, the drapes in a particular room were blue and that they symbolized this particular thing. And he's like, no, they, they just were blue. That's how I saw them. So I've, I've heard that. <laughs> it doesn't have to be a deeper meaning to everything. I've heard that about uh, Robert Frost on a path, uh, road not taken about why he went left and versus right. And, uh, and he said essentially the same thing. So I don't know if that's true or if it's just one of those tropes, but the idea is sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. Exactly. So, That's exactly it. Totally feel that one. So is this the, <laughs> uh, the protocol universe? Is that one you see having room to expand with other authors like the four horsemen world you play in? Or are you going to keep this one all to yourself? You know, I don't know at this point. I think that uh, I want to tell a few more stories there, but I've also I've had some interest in other folks of being able to to look at this because the idea with it, the imprint war is that there's 200 soldiers from the, the 20th century who had good enough DNA samples and memory samples that were taken from uh, basically studies for mild traumatic uh, brain injury. And those, those scans and the, their DNA samples were enough that they could actually graph them together and, and imprint their memory on a genetic descendant. And so, you know, I've told one, uh, one story and runs in the family. I've got another one in the, the protocol war series. So there's 198 that are still out there. So there's uh, there's room to play if I want to do it. Now, do you ever say why the people from the future can't do it? Yeah. So basically, what what's done is that you know in that particular universe, Earth has has reached a, a state of passivity. We are completely at peace. There is no war. Armies don't exist. There is there is nothing along the lines. I mean, it's basically you would think it's like a utopia. But it really isn't. It's still the, the people in power doing what they do. But essentially, the, the population has been pacified. And when they realize that there's this intergalactic threat that's coming, 
they have no one to wage war. And so that they reach back to the 20th century with these very rare samples to try to do so. There is a, oh, I'm drawing a blank. There's an army guy that wrote one similar to that. And I can't remember his name. I want to say it was the Peacemaker trilogy, but that doesn't sound right. Um, <laughs> that would be me. <laughs> no, I mean, it's, it's similar, but it's uh, basically the same premise that humans uh, became very passive. Um, so I will find out the name of that series because there's another army guy that wrote it. Um, and, and I'll get that in the show notes. Uh, dear, Cool. Yeah, I'd like to see that. And I will get it to you as well. I'll make a note of that to the notebook that's sitting right next to me. All right. So I will get that, dear listener, rather than you listen to silence while I try to remember. Uh, maybe it's the <laughs> Peace Warrior. Maybe that's it. Uh, that could be it. Yes, it's the Peace Warrior trilogy by author Stephen L. Hawk. Oh, okay, cool. And, uh, I will look he that is, up. Uh, it's a good story. I uh, beta read the some of the follow-on books. But uh, the, he's, he's hardcore dedicated to his series. He tattooed some of his characters. I'm not that dedicated. Sorry. Sorry, dear listeners. <laughs> um, so the series has aliens in it. So how did you come up with them? Do you let nature inspire you with sort of analogs or do you try to create something from whole cloth? Uh, a little bit of both. There's certainly things. I mean, when you start talking about creating an insectoid race, you, you tend to gravitate towards things like the, you know, a purring mantis, that sort of thing. Uh, when you start dealing with other, other races, I mean, there, there were different things that I saw, you know, combinations of something like the, the preacher, the creature from the black lagoon crossed with a predator, you know, that, that type of thing. So you, you start putting some of those things together and then some, you just kind of spin out of thin air and just kind of go with. So I, there was, really wasn't a, a conscious effort to design the aliens in advance. It was, here's a, an idea of what the species name is. And then I see them as an insectoid race and then go, <laughs> how do I describe that? And how do I, how do I put that together and go from there? Okay. That makes sense. Sometimes it's, on the one hand, you want it to be truly alien, but if you go too far out, then your, your reader is going to have a hard time relating so, Absolutely. so it's, it's it's a delicate tightrope to walk absolutely so this series also has ai in it so do you think this will be good for humanity uh how far into this topic do you delve in the story and this is going to be a long block from you so i'm just going to set this up and are you in agreement with stephen hawking's and elon musk that it's a bad idea um you know i i for a long time i thought that ai was was not a good thing and AI is pretty smart, don't get me wrong, but I think that as we, as we see uh, artificial intelligence continue to develop, I think there's going to be a couple things that we'll, that we'll see that will be interesting. I think that they're going to be, that an AI is going to, going to know us pretty well. Uh, I think that it can reflect our, I think it could reflect our ways of thinking. I think it could essentially know everything that there is to know. Uh, they they would really understand us pretty well. I mean, imagine you know your parent looking over over your shoulder. I think that's kind of what an AI could end up being. Um, I think that they could have uh, honesty to it. I mean, uh, Hugh Howey uh, had a little. Uh, uh, I think it was an essay on his website a long time ago that talked about it. And he, I think he called it a perfectly polished mirror that an AI would be looking at us and basically reflecting who we are as humanity and. We get a lot of the the AI is gonna gonna kill us out of fear because well we're human beings and, and we often live in fear, and I think that we don't understand how adaptable we are sometimes, and I think AI will learn that and would be something that it would, I think I think it would benefit us honestly, and certainly there are some things that to to be uh, leery of, and and I think that as it continues to be developed, I think it will be something that will end up benefiting humanity on the whole. Okay. So uh, will you, in the future, bow down before your robot overlords? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> nope. Uh, you nope. will die, sir. They will kill you all. But, all right, enough joking. So <laughs> the other part of the interview that we do is I've skimmed, uh, you know, as we skim the reviews. So uh, the reviews help the right reader find the right book. So please be kind and speak your minds on the reviewing platforms. Your first book in the series has 51 reviews with a 4.5 star rating. They all mention uh, that your characters were engaging. So how do you go about crafting um, such fun characters that your readers love? When I was going through the the process of outlining that book, I was working with a mentor, a gentleman by the name of Lou Anders, who at the time was the editorial director at Pyre Books. And 
Lou told me uh, something that sticks to that sticks to me every every day that I write. It's that your book is a movie in someone else's head, and when you start looking at constructing a character, again, we, we want to see a little bit of ourselves in characters, and especially if you think about movies that you really enjoyed or movies that you really hated, you either it was probably revolving around the character. Some, there was something that was unbelievable about a character in a movie that you hated. Or there was something about a character in a movie that, that you watched that really touched you at, at an emotional core. And when you go into constructing your characters and you're looking at who they are and what they want and what they or what they think they want and how that changes over time, that's where you draw a lot of readers in because you give them uh, that backstory. And then you show their, you show your characters failing. Um, your character is not going to pick up a lightsaber and save the universe. There's there's going to be efforts there where they're going to they're going to be learning and they're going to be failing, but the process of those failures continues to move them forward to that time that when they jump into an X-wing fighter, you you can believe it. That's kind of that's kind of the way I've always approached character development is give the audience something that they that they they can see themselves in. You know, Luke Skywalker. We've all we were all whiny at one point. We were all whiny teenagers. You know, we wanted to do something that our parents didn't want us to do. And that's that's how Luke starts. And so when that you see that in the original Star Wars movie, you're like, hey, that's me. I know that kid. And it, it kind of goes from there. But if Luke doesn't change over the course of the story, you know, when he, when he jumps into an X-Wing at the end, we don't buy it. Okay. So continuing with the analysis of reviews, which I look at before buying the novel, um, I see that your negative reviews all start with mention that the novel starts with a slow burn. Now, this style of storytelling is loved by some and hated by others. So knowing that as you read the reviews, would you do it differently if you wrote it today? Or are you satisfied with the slow but dramatic storytelling style? I wouldn't change it. Um, again, you're dealing with an amnesiac protagonist. So my, my protagonist wakes up. Um, in a wheelchair overlooking Circular Key in Australia. And he understands where he is because he's been there before. And it's his first fortunate uh, encounter with his memory. But there, there has to come a time, especially in, with that particular story, he can't just suddenly pop in and go, hey, I'm back. Uh, again, we don't believe it. There's going to be that, that moment of, you know, the things are different. What's going on? And there's there's asking questions, and his anxiety level is going to going to raise as he starts seeing more things that don't fit with what he remembered. And so you have to have a little bit of that that slow burn. the The reality is with that particular book, the the opening sequences used to be a lot longer. I think we ended up losing quite quite a bit of word count out of those uh, opening chapters. But all that slow burn takes place essentially in three chapters. And then the character's out running, doing, or not running, but he's out doing what he needs to do to recover his memory. So I think in that particular case, it worked. I think there's uh, other stories where you really, you have to get into, uh, get into a story fairly quickly. I mean, movies have trained us to do this. Uh, I, when I teach classes on story structure, most movies give you the, uh, the call to adventure, the, the, the big moment where things are going to change, the inciting incident, if you will, at like the 10 or 12 minute mark. So you've essentially got about that much time comparatively in a book to get your audience hooked on your character before you start the story. And when you start going beyond what they think that point is, then yeah, you're going to get the negative review for a slow burn. But this particular case with, with uh, Sleeper Protocol, no, I wouldn't, I wouldn't change it at all. Okay. I mean, I don't necessarily have a problem with it. I just, you know, recognizing that sometimes we learn as we go. Um but the overall, like I said, the readers loved it. 4.5 stars over 51 reviews. So, and uh, that is as of recording on the 13th of November. So this is after the Amazon, the great Amazon review purge. So maybe there were more and even higher review. Um, so moving back to the positive reviews, um, I just think uh, the negative ones can be helpful. I saw one that was like, this is just splatter porn gun violence story with no real i'm like dude sign me up you sold me so sometimes <laughs> the bad reviews sell a book you know because uh and you can't you can't worry about a negative review and, and i don't you know the people there are people that write one star reviews about the grand canyon so <laughs> <laughs> or, or or just nonsense i think amazon pressures people with uh you know review this product that sometimes they fill it out just to get the emails to stop <laughs> <laughs> so, but moving back to the positive reviews, there seems to be a, a consensus that you nailed the intrafamilial relationships. So you showcase the value of family through the story you wove. Uh, was this intentional when you were writing? And how will you manage to keep that up as you grow the series in the universe? 
It was. I mean, when I first started the the book, it was the idea of of this guy figuring out his his identity and what that brought, that what that meant to the the Terran defense forces of the the future time. And as I went through writing the story, it ended up becoming that the theme was more about home. What what is our definition of home? What are we looking for when we go home? You know, the, Tom Wolf talked about. I think it was in Bonfire of the Vanities that you can't go home again. And what does that really mean for someone who's woken up essentially out of time? And in this particular case, he does try to go home. So he, he wants to find that familial relationship. He wants to to have something that he can't necessarily have. And I think in a lot of cases, with, with well, at least with that particular book, there's a lot of me in there. A lot of dealing with uh, family. A lot of um, there's a lot of history. A lot of a lot of some of the the personal experiences I, that I've had over time, all kind of wove into what what the character is and what he discovers along his along his journey. So I think that building on that and going forward, I, I did kind of the same thing with Vendetta Protocol, and I think as we get into the the third Protocol War novel, it will continue because it's an integral part of the characters. It's not necessarily just knowing that they have come back to a, a new future, but they've come back not necessarily with old values, but they've come back with something that's very different to the world around them. And I think that that's, again, creates conflict and that creates a good story. All right. So there, um, any updates about other forms of media coming out about these series, RPGs, movies, video games, audiobooks, the like? Nothing really with the Protocol War series. I'm still waiting to hear when we're going to get an opportunity to do an audiobook for uh, Vendetta Protocol. Uh, that one is, it's I guess, is lagged behind, which is not surprising given the, the state of the industry right now with so many people going to audio. Um, but once once I hear about that, that'll be something to come out. Then the main stuff that we're still looking at on the, the Four Horsemen universe, you know, we do have a game coming out with the Four Horsemen, and there's been a lot of talks about some some other stuff that's super secret st- still. So uh, I think there, there's still going to be things that are going to be coming out from all the series at some point. All right, because we like to do, you heard it here first. I'm going to tell you what the super secret thing is. So pull up your chairs, get your listening ears on, but don't tell anybody. All right. Mark Wandry is going to write a My Little Pony Space Marine story. You heard it here first. <laughs> oh, here I think you, you, you might have just signed your own uh, warrant there, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> so the, uh, the audiobooks is interesting. I, I've heard that uh, Amazon is trying to start like a school to teach people to do the voice acting because you got everybody funneling into that one little narrow gap because they want the, the RC Bray or the, you know, the Luke Daniels. And it's, um, it's going to be interesting to see how that, that Academy for audiobook narration plays out. Well, it's, it's another thing that, you know, people can do from the, the comfort of their own home. It's become something you can do as a home-based business. And, you know, I, I've, I've worked with a couple of different narrators now who have done that. I've known authors who have done their, their own podcasting and their own recordings by setting up their, their microphone in the closet and reading their, their work in the closet where the clothes dampen the sound and everything. So it, it's very easily done if you do it the right way. They must have bigger closets than me. You and me both, buddy. (laughs) (laughs) So um, was there anything specifically about the Protocol War series that we didn't ask that you want to tell us before we move on? Um, yeah, I think that the thing that, that I gravitate towards with the, the Protocol War series is that it's not necessarily pure military science fiction, and it's not necessarily pure military or pure science fiction thriller. It's kind of somewhere in between the two. And I, I think that it, it's one that people would take a look at it and go, well, that doesn't seem like military sci-fi. Well, it's there. And or that does that looks too much like a like a like a thriller. Well, it's really not. So it's just kind of in between the two. So I think that if you're a fan of both mill sci-fi and any type of thriller, that you'd probably enjoy the book. Okay. Now, since you've written this novel in the in alien invasion subgenre, what is your biggest pet peeve when it, when you read about aliens? Uh, remember, speak generally because we don't need to call anybody out. Karma is a thing. I actually think you hit it a minute ago. Um, I think so many times we see aliens portrayed as too human. Um, and, but I think that that's a, that's also a fine line. You know, you know if you take an alien and you make them completely alien, you're going to have a hard time keeping your reader uh, involved. Uh, so I think that the, the stories that really do that well, that introduce a, an alien that's, that's not human in any way, shape, form or fashion. Uh, I think those are the ones that, that we, that we like. Uh, from the, the alien invasion subgenre. When we start looking at, uh, when you go all the way back to War of the Worlds, you didn't know the Martians. All you knew all you knew about the Martians was that they were just here to kick ass and take names. 
And so you didn't, you didn't really get involved with them, but as you start seeing aliens being involved from storylines, like through Star Trek and through Star Wars, you start seeing how everybody in, in, interacts and it, it becomes something that's interesting. But at the same time, if they're too, if they're too human, it, it doesn't, it, it's almost like a cop out. So I think that that's the thing that bothers me the most is that sometimes we make our aliens too human. Fair enough. So um, following that, what about Aliens Done Right? Which author or series has the best aliens in science fiction? Obviously, you'd give yourself top billing. So other than you, who would you pick? Um, there's there's too many to name, uh, honestly. Uh, David Brin has done some some great stuff uh, with his, his Uplift books. Um, Chuck Gannon's Kane Reorden series is, is a fantastic uh, series where he really differentiates the, the different alien races and their capabilities and really? how they understand uh, Chuck Gannon. Okay. And his what series? I'm sorry, you cut off for just a second. Oh, sorry. Yeah, Chuck Gannon and the Kane Reorden series. Yeah, that's Fire, uh, fire with Fire, Trial by Fire, uh, Raising Kane and Kane's Mutiny are the, the four books that are currently out in that one. Um, and, and, and Chuck does a, a great job with uh, his aliens as well. Um, when you look at how uh, different, different alien races, I'll plug some of the, the four horsemen as well. Uh, dealing with the, the different alien races, I think um, I can't think of one of the, any of the authors out of the four horsemen universe that have not done that well. Mark Wandry's done it well. Chris Kennedy and Casey, Casey uh, Azell, Marisa Wolf, uh, Chris, Christopher Woods. Uh, just basically anytime you can get into an alien's head and make them real, but make them alien enough that they're, they're not a human, you know, dressed up in a costume of any way, shape, form or fashion that you've done that well. And like I said, it's a fine line to do, but I, I think the four horsemen guys have, have all done it very well as, at, at this point too. Okay. All right. Well, uh, not that you're biased cause you wrote in that universe, but we'll go with that. <laughs> well, you, right. know, you gotta, you gotta remember too. That's, it's what I, what I've been reading a lot of as I've been writing books too, because there's so, there's so much interest in the universe now and it's grown so quickly over a, a, such a short period of time that if I'm not reading a lot of those books, I'm getting, I'm getting left behind. <laughs> Absolutely. I totally understand. Um, so, all right. I have to ask, since we were talking about aliens, do you believe it? Are there aliens out there? Oh Yeah. Yeah, I don't know what they look like or, wh- or whether we'll ever find them or not. But the universe, the the the, the scope, the, the sorry, the scope of the universe is too large. Um, I don't think we are we are alone by any way, shape, form, or fashion. Totally agree. I'm not necessarily saying that they have to be like sentient AI or sentient AI, sentient creatures. But at a minimum, we're going to find some sort of even if it's microbial, we're going to find something. Oh, absolutely, there. absolutely. So, and if it's microbial, technically that makes it alien life. It does. Although there was an interesting article recently on space.com and, um, about Mars and and in order to go there to test it, to find out if there is, you know, microbial life or whatever, we've already contaminated it by the very act of being there. So how do you rule out, you know, what's, what's just contaminated and, and mutated and whatnot. It'll be an interesting, uh, field of study as we start getting to the point where we can colonize the stars. Absolutely. So you also set this story in the genetic engineering subsp- uh, subspace, subgenre. Uh, so what do you think it is about these types of stories that appeal to readers? What makes that field of storytelling compelling? I think it's compelling because, you know, as human beings, we don't want to get old. We don't want to get sick. We don't want to die. We want to be young and, and vibrant and healthy. And the things that we could see being done in, in science fiction, things that have become more science reality in the last you know hundred years or so. Uh, I think it's going to continue to be a, a compelling subgenre because people want to see how far we can push the human body. Um, there's a there's a story by Arthur C. Clarke. I can't remember it off the top of my head, but the the story is about um, a guy that's running a marathon on the lunar surface, and he's running in a space suit. He ends up getting beaten by a robot, but he talks about at the end of the story that the next the next year or so afterward they did another race. And the guy that won was actually a human being, no spacesuit, but he had basically been vacuum proofed. And so he was actually able to, to breathe and to exert himself and run across the lunar surface without a spacesuit. So those types of things I think are, are compelling because, again, it's just seeing how far we can push the human body. Okay. Would you take the upgrades? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. I could use some of those nanites that, you know, make you young, skinny and live forever. I'd take that. 
Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, in, in, in the, the protocol war series, uh, the, the protocol is a, basically a guidance package AI that's mounted in the, in the, the subject's neck. And so it's a computer in his head. And so he's talking to this computer and having, and having that, yeah, I would do that in a heartbeat. <laughs> it would, it would make it where I don't feel like I'm talking to myself all the time. <laughs> well, cell phones already gotten rid of the, uh, the crazy man wandering around muttering to himself at this point, you just put one That's of those Bluetooth things in your ear. It doesn't even have to be on and people will just assume you're not crazy. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> I mean, speaking for a friend, of course. So <laughs> yeah, you have no, you have no experience with this whatsoever. None whatsoever. So uh, within the genetic engineering subgenre, what is your biggest pet peeve? The one thing you wish all these books wouldn't do? I think the, the one thing that I, I wish the books wouldn't do was would assume that there is there's some, that, that there, there's nothing that's uh, incurable. Uh, th- that we have at our, at our beck and call, we have the ability to, to, to do everything. Um, I was thinking about that this question earlier, and what came to mind was uh, Star Trek II: The Wrath of Khan. And <clears throat> there's the whole thing with Kirk's eyeglasses, and Bones gets them his his reading glasses because Kirk is still aller- he's allergic to the medication that would allow him to have perfect vision. So you know it's it's kind of the the, the antithesis of uh, <laughs> life finds a way from Jurassic Park. It's you know your body is still going to have idiosyncrasies. So we can't just assume that we're going to be able to eradicate everything and everything is going to be perfect. There's still going to be things that are, are going to happen within our bodies that we don't explain. There's still going to be interactions with things in our environments that, that, will, that will cause harm to us. You know, I, I can say this from experience. I survived a, a necrotizing fasciitis, a skin-eating bacterial infection, and that's pretty scary stuff when you see something that's trying to attack the, your, your flesh. And so there's, there's things out there that are, are still going to elude us scientifically. So I can't, I I think that from genetic engineering perspective, we can't say that we've solved everything because nature's going to continue to find a a way around that. Or mutate what you do solve. And then it's a new problem. Exactly. Yeah. Or yeah, some type of mutation, something, something will happen. I mean, like you talked about with uh, investigating microbial life on Mars, as you start messing with something, you ha- you risk the opportunity or you risk, uh, not the opportunity, you risk the, the, oh, I just lost the word. You, you basically risk uh, contaminating that and causing a mutation. Yeah. I like that. Um, I don't know if you ever played the video games, the Halo games, but there's a bunch of books out too. One of the characters in that universe uh, was, you know, had to hide the fact that he had the sickness related to the hypersleep and all that stuff that they do uh, before drops. So I like the idea that, you know, as you develop new technology that you, you know, yes, you might solve this, but you, you have these other problems that, that come in. Right. And that was also um, Johnny Mnemonic uh, movie. And then it was also a Philip K. Dick uh, story. And there, the idea there was that the exposure to technology caused a disease in humans called the black shakes. So you have, yeah, again, it's exposure to different things causes something else to, to mutate or to happen. Uh, yeah, I, I think, you know, the idea that everything is, is perfect, gets a little boring. So, but all right. So what is it among or who, who among the genetic engineering novels do you think does it right? Which are your favorite? <laughs> At the, at the risk of keeping this short, uh, I'll, I'll kind of put it to where I, what I consider one of the, the standards was uh, Michael Crichton. Uh, Michael Crichton did uh, Jurassic Park, obviously, which if you've, if you've not read the book, you definitely need to read the, read the book because it goes a lot more into the science aspect of how they created the dinosaur clones and, and, and that sort of thing. Um, he also did it, I'm trying to remember, well, the Andromeda Strain, and then um, there's another book that I can't remember of his off the top of my head. Um, but he, he applies the, the science to it and makes it, makes it readable. And of course, when you're writing science fiction, especially the, the harder, more, you know, more literate science, science, science fiction, um, you've, you've got to make it palatable to even the, the, the reader that's going to pick up the book in the airport. And I think that's what Crichton did very well. So when you, when you actually read the book, you have an understanding at a kind of a, a very macro level of the science that's going on. So you, it, p- it puts the pieces together that you may have forgotten since freshman biology in high school, but it puts those together. You're like, Oh, okay. Yeah. I totally get that. Or, you know, you slept through freshman biology. I mean, you know, speaking, <laughs> speaking for a friend. Again, not, not from personal experience at all. <laughs> the reason I took the Betty Crocker version of all the sciences when I was in college. 
But all right. So uh, Michael Crichton's a good answer. And those are good stories. And the movies missed some of the best subplots in those. It's a shame. Mm-hmm. So, but enough about your books, Kevin. So shameless plugging is over. What are you reading in the genre of science fiction? Uh, right now, um, I've actually got uh, Chuck Gannon's Canary Orton series this year on my desk. Uh, I've, been, I've been working through that. Uh, it was one that I stopped reading after book one, what was about the time that Sleeper Protocol came out, and I turned back and have been going through that. I talked about uh, going through the Four Horsemen universe. I'm working through uh, Sinclair Scorpions by P.P. Uh, uh, P. Corcoran right now. And that's for reasons because he involves a uh, the second human peacemaker, Nikki Sinclair, and we may have plans for something in the future. Who knows? Um, that could be a you're, you heard it here first sort of a thing. But we got to we got to get to the point where we can actually put that together and see what the idea might be. Um, and then when I'm actually in the middle of writing a project, I'm I'm in the, the middle of my next Four Horsemen book. It'll be called Death Angel. I actually read a lot of nonfiction, and I have on my desk the memoir of George S. Patton called War as I Knew It. So I do a lot of, a lot of nonfiction when I'm actually in the middle of writing. Patton was an interesting fella. He was, I don't think he gets, I don't think he gets as much credit as he may have been due. He, uh, he had the famous quote, the object of war is not to die for your country, but make the other sorry son of a biscuit eater die for his smartest thing I ever heard. Yep. Yeah. And of course, if you haven't seen the movie with uh, George C. Scott, there's a reason why he got the Oscar for that. He's, it's a fantastic movie too. But now you've got to convince the young kids that that's not really him, that that's the movie adaptation of his life, not his story. <laughs> Cause some of it, I mean, they, they did pretty good keeping true to the history, but some of it was definitely, you know, yeah. But anyway, that's the magic of Hollywood. So finally, uh, we like to remember the science that makes science fiction fun. So are there any new scientific breakthroughs you're following or excited by? I think one that it, it's happened within the last couple of weeks, but it was it was fascinating to me was uh, NASA had been doing some high altitude parachute testing for the, the Mars 2020 platform. And they were they launched a bunch of different rockets carrying different types of parachutes with different ballasts to, to see what they could do. And they actually broke the world record for fastest deployment of a parachute. So this parachute that they had was carrying a, a load of 67,000 pounds, uh, which is the heaviest ever payload for a parachute. And it's, it's essentially like 85, 90% heavier than the payload that it's going to have to deliver to Mars. But it deployed this par- this parachute in four tenths of a second. Ooh, hot so high altitude uh, supersonic parachute deploying in four tenths of a second to slow down this, this payload to be able to bring it down to Mars. I thought that was amazing. It was called uh, Aspire, Advanced uh, Supersonic Parachute Inflation Research Experiment. Aspire. Let me make that note and I'll find a link for you, dear listener. All right, so uh, I'm going to do a run-through of the notes Chris had um, just real quick, and then I will link to it in the Sci-Fi Shenanigans Facebook group because, yeah, he picked an article that's too smart for me, uh, but he's not here, so I'm going to read it. So Axion's first space (laughs) thrusters could launch on a CubeSat this weekend. Uh, So remember, as we record it, it's the 13th of November, 2018. So Natalia Bailey was always, this is from the article, was always interested in space, but it wasn't until she was sitting in a university class on propulsion that she realized she wanted to do more with her life. She was always struck by how little engineers knew about electric propulsion systems compared to the traditional chemical fuel powered equivalents. In 2014, she co-founded her own company. And if all goes well, the first rocket will be launching uh, this weekend, uh, which would mean that, you know, as we record this on Tuesday, it would have just launched. Um, I have not seen anything come out yet about the updates on this, but Bailey's company, ASEAN Systems, is starting with the modest science project. Uh, thanks to the help of a team of high school students from Irving, California, who built a CubeSat using ASEAN technology. Um, and she thinks it's totally cool that, you know, building a CubeSat satellite at this point is a high school work because it, uh, it sort of blows your mind when you think about you know, how sci-fi futuristic that was even a decade ago. Um, so his thoughts on it was the um, the satellite just launched. And basically this, once the, the satellite deploys, it will be able to photograph um, Venus and other targets much quickly because Cube satellites, I believe, will be able to go faster. I'll link the article because I'm the knuckle dragger in the group. Uh, they're hoping to radically improve our knowledge of space with uh, better satellite technology. Uh, which will be huge if we want to colonize the stars. We kind of have to know where we're going. 
So I will make a note of getting that in the Facebook group ASAP. So it will probably already be there when you're listening, dear listener. Moving on to something I can speak about without sounding like a total moron. So uh, my article, uh, future spacesuits should be beautiful and not just for space. Here's why. That is the article from space.com. So from the article, the stereotypical image of an astronaut is shaped by their spacesuit with its puffy white body and boxy backpack, backpack holding the life support Dava Newman, an aerospace engineer from Massachusetts Institute of Technology, wants to change that. She is designing what she hopes will be the next generation of space suits, which will give the life-saving devices the bulk and style of something more like athletic or camping equipment. Uh, so her quote, uh, we're going to Mars not just to sit in the habitat. We're going there to explore. So we don't want you to fight the spacesuit. We want you to find life on Mars. Uh, and so... Basically, we're going to see cooler and more functional spacesuits for our future astronauts because the rule of cool, people, the rule of cool. That is the <laughs> article. And as you can see why I took the idiot article and Chris took the smart people one. Moving on from that, because uh, my wife is probably giggling maniacally in the background now. Uh, Kevin, how can listeners find you? Well, I have a Facebook author page, face, uh, Kevin Eikenberry author. So you can find me there. I have a Twitter account uh, at the writer Ike. That's T-H-E-W-I-W-R-I-T-E-R-Ike. And then uh, I have my website is KevinEikenberry.com. It's in a little bit of repair right now. We're getting ready to, to launch a new website. should be all functional by the first of the year. And when that launches, there'll be a free uh, short story for folks to sign up for a reader's list and that sort of thing. So uh, working on that. Otherwise, as far as like Instagram and stuff, I am woefully behind. So maybe one of these days I'll get on there and actually create an Instagram account. Who knows? All right. This is normally where I ask Chris, but he's lazy and, you know, hiding from his wife. So I will say how you can find us. Our website is www.sfshenanigans.com. Our Twitter is at SFS underscore show, which somebody is manning. Chris and I have taken turns making sure we post things and whatnot. Uh, our email is podcast at sfshenanigans.com. And our shenanigans Facebook group is www.facebook.com backslash groups backslash SF shenanigans. Thank you for spending some of your precious time with us. For Chris Winder, I'm J.R. Hanley, and this was the Sci-Fi Shenanigans Podcast. We'll be back next week at the same time where we'll indulge our love of space and all things that go boom. All right. Thank you for sticking with us through that uh, archived episode that was in the uh, in the digital memory hole that we found. We thought you'd enjoy it. So thank you for spending some of your precious time with us. For Nick Garver and Doc Seska, I am J.R. Hanley, and this was the archive for the Blasters and Blades podcast. We'll be back at our regular scheduled time where we'll indulge our love of nerd culture, cheesy jokes, and all things that go boom.